Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 is where we're going to start reading here in just a moment or two. Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter that is all about faith, what faith is and what faith looks like in the lives of God's people. And so as we jump back into the middle of this chapter and we read a handful of more stories and try to figure out what they mean, I want us to begin with one of the thoughts that we had last time we were together in Hebrews chapter 11, and that is that a life of faith begins with a great big God. Remember that Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is and then gives us a certain kind of definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is what faith is, and we spent time with that. that the, the word, the piece of vocabulary, faith is not magic, it's not an emotion, it's not some sort of ethereal concept. It's actually quite stable and secure. Faith is trust in someone. It is confidence in someone. Remember, the question is not whether or not you're going to have faith. The question is, in whom or in what are you going to put your faith? It isn't a religious word. It is a human word. We all have faith. And faith is all about the object of our faith. You see, if the object of our faith is small, if the object of our faith is powerless to handle the things of this world, then the expression of that trust is going to be small. It's going to stutter. It's going to stumble. It's not going to know what to do. But if the object of our faith turns out to be the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, the sustainer of our lives, our Savior and soon and coming King, then our faith can be magnificent. We can express surprising, shocking faith in our lives as we follow Christ. So Hebrews chapter 11 is all about faith. It describes faith for us, gives us these definitions, and then it shows it to us. Here's what it is, and here's what it looks like when it plays out in the lives of God's people. Now remember Hebrews 11, we're using this image of a kind of portrait gallery of faith. It's a little bit what it's like. Let's, let me tell you what faith is like, and let's begin to walk down this hallway, and let's look at these portraits, and, and here's a glimpse of this person's life and, and what this season was like, what this action was like because they had faith in God. Remember the Old Testament's a big book. Hebrews 11 is a relatively short chapter, and so we're just getting quick glimpses of a few of these lives and specific instances, and here's what faith looked like in their lives. So Hebrews 11 encourages us that way, and it encourages us to go back into the Old Testament and read the rest of the story. If this is what this was like, then I wonder what the rest of it was like. Our passage of Scripture today, we're going to talk about the faith of sojourners and the faith of slaves. The faith of those who are still on the journey, God has given them a promise. They haven't seen it yet. Sometimes they're literally on their way, walking on the way toward the promise of God. What does that faith look like in the faith of slaves, people who live in a culture that is not their own? They live in a culture that is at odds with their faith. What does that faith look like? So we're going to spend some more time with Abraham and his family. These are our sojourners. They're on a journey. Abraham and his family were promised land, 
Abraham was promised a large and blessed family and a future, but they live as people without a homeland. They live as sojourners. So how do they hold to the promises of God when they haven't been fulfilled yet, but they have been given? How do they hold to the promises of God, especially when the people of God make no sense? I don't know how much time you have spent with Christians, but every now and then, the people of God don't make sense. Not you, other people, right? How do you hold to the things of God? How do you hold to the things of God when God doesn't make sense? We get to wrestle with that a little bit through the life of Abraham. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in the life of Moses here in chapter 11. He's one of the slaves in Egypt. By the time Moses' life comes around, he and the people of God, an entire nation of people, are living as slaves in Egypt. And we're going to discover that Moses' family and Moses himself express their trust in God by choosing God over the world around them, a very powerful and overwhelming world around them. They choose God instead. The faith of Moses is going to show us the value of friendship with God over friendship with the world. It's going to show us the value of living as if we see the invisible instead of living just with the visible. And it's going to show us that the way out of slavery only happens through shed blood. So let's begin reading. We start with the story of Abraham and then members of his family. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, it goes like this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested. You can read this story in Genesis chapter 22. I would encourage you after this morning to go back and read that chapter and just kind of get a feel for the rest of the story that has to go with what we read here in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, all of the stories that we're going to read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then Moses and his family, all of these stories are very dramatic. They're really quite incredible. When you read the story and you slow down and you make sense of what's actually happening, it's a little overwhelming. All of them are dramatic. This story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac just takes the cake. God asks Abraham to do something that simply doesn't make sense to us. And when we read the story, Genesis 22, we read about the story here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the kind of thing that it's like when we read the story, it actually tests our faith, much less what Abraham went through when he was commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
What is going on here? This doesn't make sense to us. It seems to us to be wrong on every conceivable level. The story is, again, dramatic and amazing, the things that unfold through it. But what we're going to do this morning to make sure that we can make some sense of it is we're going to keep our eyes on Abraham. We're going through Hebrews 11, and so we want to stay focused on the faith that Abraham shows, the kind of trust in God, confidence in God that Abraham shows as he walks through this process. So let's keep in mind what happens before this moment in the Old Testament. God had promised to Abraham land for his family. Now, that hasn't been secured. It hasn't been completely and absolutely given to them yet, but God has promised them land. And God has promised that God would give Abraham this beautiful and this great, big, gigantic family. There's this point at which God is talking to Abraham about these promises. And he says, Abraham, why don't you look into the sky? Can you count the stars in the sky? That's what your family is going to be like. That's going to be the size of your family. And they're going to bless all of the rest of the world. And Abraham, it will happen through your family. Now remember... We get a glimpse of this earlier in Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham and Sarah have no children. Abraham gets to the age 99. Sarah gets to the age of 89. God visits them and says, this time next year, you're going to have children. You're going to have a child, a son. They give birth to a son. His name is Isaac. He's referred to in that story as the son of the promise. That's exactly what Hebrews 11 calls him. Abraham received a promise. Isaac is the son of the promise. Now you continue through that story in the Old Testament, and Isaac becomes maybe a teenager, possibly a young man. Now remember when Isaac was born, Abraham was 100. By the time the events of the story take place in Genesis chapter 22, if Isaac is, let's say, 16, 17 years old, 100 years is in Abraham's rearview mirror. I mean, he is getting up there, right? But at that point, God comes to Abraham and says, I need you to take your son Isaac. And the way he puts it is this, the son that you love, you're going to take him to the top of that mountain, and you're going to sacrifice him to me. We read that, and we kind of recoil at that command for all kinds of reasons. He's the son of the promise. God is asking for a sacrifice of Isaac, and it, it causes us to pause when we read it because we don't know what to do with it. What's fascinating about the story in Genesis chapter 22 is that though the command gives us pause, it doesn't give Abraham pause because then it says, well, what Abraham did the next morning is he takes the wood for the sacrifice, and a donkey, and the donkey carries the wood, and he takes two young men from his group, and, and Isaac, and they begin to make this journey toward the mountain. It gives us pause, but it didn't give Abraham pause. How is it that Abraham is able to obey this command? Well, the text in Hebrews chapter 11 tells us something really interesting in verse 19. It tells us that Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Now, that's amazing, friends. 
Keep this in mind. We have the promise of land and a family, and Abraham and Sarah have one son, and they are old. And God gives a command and says, I need you to sacrifice your son. And the way that Abraham sees through that is trust in a God who is powerful enough to even raise someone from the dead. This seems impossible to me, but I follow a God who is bigger than what looks impossible to me. So Abraham's consideration is, I don't know how this is going to play out exactly, except that if Isaac dies, God will raise him from the dead. That's, that's stunning. We get a hint of that back in the original story in Genesis chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. Listen to how the story goes. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Other translations actually stick the word in there, and we will come back to you. You know, notice something that happens in these couple of verses. For three days, uh, this whole little team of people travel. The donkey's carrying the wood. And Abraham gets to the foot of the mountain. He takes the wood off the donkey. He tells the two young men on the donkey, you guys stay here. He puts the wood on the back of his son, and Isaac carries the wood for his sacrifice up the hill. And Abraham says, we're coming back again. Abraham believed that both he and Isaac would come back down the mountain. Friends, Abraham believed that resurrection would secure the promise. He believed that resurrection would secure the promise. What did we say at the very top of the sermon this morning? A life of faith begins with a vision of a great, big God. How big is Abraham's God? Now, in Abraham's life, it's actually led him to this point. Abraham has already learned that God can bring life out of surprising places that seem to be dead Abraham's 99, Sarah is 89, and God says, this time next year, you guys are going to have a son. And they both laugh at the promise. And the book of Hebrews says, and now this is not me, this is Scripture speaking, God brings life out of their lives even though they are as good as dead. That's how old they are. They're as good as dead. And yet what does God do? He brings life out of that. Abraham has already seen this. Abraham has already learned a life of faith and trust in God, leaving his homeland for a new land that God would eventually show him and fulfilled in the birth of his son, Isaac. And we've got this promise that God gives. We have this command to sacrifice his son. We have a contradiction. We have what seems to be a contradiction between the promise that God gives and the command that God gives. The promise of a family through Isaac and the command to sacrifice Isaac. Let's notice something about a life of faith in God. Faith asks us to believe the promise and obey the command. To believe the promise and obey the command. Everything that God has given us in this book about what life with him is, who he is, what he grants us, what he gives us, all of those promises are true. And then we're, we're called, we're asked to obey the commands of God in Scripture, the commands that God lays upon our lives. And in fact, guys, God has ordained his relationship with us 
so that oftentimes he actually fulfills the promise through our obedience to the command. Abraham obeys the command, and what he's thinking is, is, well, God's going to raise my son Isaac from the dead. Will God fulfill his promise if you and I are faithful to the commands? So Abraham knows, and he shows the way for us in this. We read these lives, we listen to their stories, and then we learn how to follow in their footsteps, guys. Abraham knew that even this command could not derail the promise of God. This is trust in a great big God. That's important because typically you and I are the kind of people who will obey the commands that make sense to us. I read your promise. I know your promise. I hear your promise. You've given me a command that cuts against the way I feel about life. You've given me a command that makes things a little bit uncomfortable for me. You've given me a command that maybe even I can't make sense of. Well, I'm not going to do that. We want to obey commands that make complete sense to us. Abraham has a larger vision of God than that. He trusts the promise. He obeys the command. This is trust in a powerful God, a good God but ultimately trust in a sovereign Lord. The preacher D. James Kennedy used to always put it this way, there's only one thing you cannot say to your Lord, and that is no. You say no, he's not Lord. You've become Lord. As I was going through this, I ran across um, a poem, and, and parts of it are famous. You might even know a couple of the lines for this poem by William Cowper, but it expresses well some of what we're wrestling with in the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Here's how it begins, and this is what you know. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps upon the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And what we learn about God is deep in these unfathomable minds, God is at work with his skill, with his will, with his power, making his will work. And if we watch God with unbelieving eyes, none of it's going to make sense to us. And I love this line. God is his own interpreter. He's going to tell us how this is going to work. And he will make it plain. So Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up his son Isaac believing that God was even able to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews says, and so he did. Figuratively speaking, he received his son Isaac back from the dead. Now we need to round out the story because the story is unique and it comes back to help us a little bit later on as well. Abraham tells the two young men and the donkey, you guys stay behind. He puts the wood on his son Isaac's back and they begin up the mountain. And Isaac asks a very natural question at that point because he's got a lot of wood for an altar for a sacrifice and there's no lamb anywhere. So Isaac asks his dad, well, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says, don't worry, son. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. He will provide the lamb for us. 
This picture of the moment of the sacrifice of Isaac is powerful. Now keep in mind that Isaac's a young man. Abraham's an old man. And the text says that Abraham binds Isaac. Isaac has given himself up to this now, to what his father is doing, to what God has commanded his father to do. And Abraham raises his hand with the knife, and the angel shows up at exactly that moment. I love the way this, this painting portrays it. The knife has actually fallen out of his hand in surprise. Abraham, stop. I know that you trust me. He stops the sacrifice, and at that moment, they notice in the thicket a ram caught. Abraham unbinds Isaac, and they sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac. Guys, this is important. God didn't need the sacrifice. God needed the trust of Abraham. He needed Abraham's faith. This isn't a story about child sacrifice. And a lot of people who get grumpy at the Christian faith will say, this is about child sacrifice. There is no second in which this story is about child sacrifice. That will not happen. Abraham believes his son will be raised from the dead. God will not allow Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's not what he needs. He needs the faith of Abraham. It's a complex story. And sometimes it's difficult. The more we spend time with it, the more this story comes into focus for us, we begin to see something else. We begin to see another story come into focus. You see, guys, centuries later, the Son of God will put wood on his back and climb up a hill. And at that moment, The hands that hold the tools of execution will not be stopped. And he will die on that cross, and he will rise from the grave. Guys, resurrection secures the promise. God will provide for himself a lamb. Isaac, don't worry. God will take care of this. Sure enough. And it's not just a lamb that's caught in the bushes It's the Lamb of God. It is his very son, sacrificed in the place of Isaac and in the place of everybody else. Abraham's trust in God, even at that moment, becomes part of his story, what it means for us to watch Abraham and learn what faith and trust means. It becomes a part of Isaac's story. Isaac lives and goes on to give birth to his son and those grandkids. And it becomes part of the greatest story ever told, the story that saves this sinner's soul, the death and resurrection of the Son of God, my Savior, Jesus Christ. By faith, Abraham trusted God even in that moment. Hang on to some of those thoughts. The text very quickly now goes through his son, his grandson, and his great-grandkids, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. It says in verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. 
This is, you can read this story in Genesis chapter 27. And Abraham's picture in the portrait rally is big and it's dramatic. And the picture of Isaac is just real small and it's, and it's real quick. But we get this fascinating story. Isaac has grown to be an old man. It's time for him to pass on. And he knows that he's gone blind and he needs to give his blessing to his sons. And the way the culture works is that the greater blessing goes to the older son and the lesser blessing goes to the younger son. By the time we get to this story, we've learned something about Isaac's younger son, Jacob. He's a deceiver. And he has already deceived his older brother Esau out of his birthright. And Isaac's gone blind, and it's time to bless his kids. And it turns out that Jacob's mother, Rebekah, Isaac's wife, is a manipulator. So she tells her younger son, Jacob, here's what we're going to do. Your older brother is hairy. He's so hairy that if we put goat skin on you... Your, your father is going to think it's your voice. He's going to feel your arm and go, oh, that's Esau. So they put on some goat skin. Jacob approaches his father. His father feels his arm and gives him the older son's blessing. The mother manipulates the son. The son and the mother deceive the father and receive the older brother's blessing. But notice how the text goes. By faith, Isaac did this. The object of Isaac's faith is not Rebekah. It's not Jacob. It's not Esau. The object of his faith is God. So even when there's a manipulator and a deceiver at work, he is still able to express faith in God. God's work will still be done even when these people are doing what they're trying to do, do an in-round deceive and manipulate. Now, this is important. This is important for this reason, I think. Guys, when the people of God let you down, remind yourself that your trust is in God and not in them. How many people do you know who won't darken the doorstep of the church because they're angry at church people? Right? You and I need to remind ourselves our trust is not in anybody in this room. Our trust is in God. And no matter what broken people do, we can still express trust in God, and he is still able to perform his work. Now, that kind of thought continues in Jacob's life. We have Isaac at the end of his life doing this, and Jacob and his mom. Then Jacob gets to the end of his life, and it tells us this. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. You can read this story in Genesis chapter 48. At the end of Jacob's life, one of his younger sons, Joseph, Joseph has these two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he wants his dad, Grandpa Jacob, to bless these two sons. And so what does Joseph do as Jacob is kind of getting old and he's sitting there? Joseph brings his oldest son to Jacob's right hand, which is a symbol of the greater blessing. He brings his younger son to Jacob's left hand, which is the symbol of the lesser blessing. So these two sons show up, and Jacob does this. He switches his hands. He does something completely unexpected. Joseph tries to move his arm back and says, Jacob says, no. And Jacob pronounces this blessing. Jacob, seeing what God needs done, by faith and trust in God, does the unexpected. And he swaps the elder and the younger son. And again, even when things that are unexpected happen to us, we know that we can still show trust in God's plan. 
God is accomplishing what he wants to do. And sometimes, guys, that just happens in the unexpected moments. Isaac at the end of his life, Jacob at the end of his life, and then Joseph. This is, I don't know, this is crazy. I'm reading through this. I'm working through this. I get to verse 22. I'm like, what, what, why this? By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You know, think about how curious this is for just a moment. I want to land on this verse for a couple of minutes, whether you like it or not. This is what we're going to do. The story of Joseph um, monopolizes about a third of the entire book of Genesis. And if you know the story of Joseph, the coat of many colors, I mean, there's intrigue, there's prison, there's, there, you know, you know there's, there's dreams and visions and assassination attempts. I mean, it is quite the story. And the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 picks one thing. At the end of his life, he talks about the exodus, which is still yet to come, because when Joseph dies... The nation of Israel is growing, and they all live in Egypt. They're not slaves yet, but they live in Egypt, not in the promised land. And he gave directions concerning his bones. Here's how I want you guys to bury me. Let's think about this for a minute. When you go back and you read this, and you read this story in Genesis chapter 50, you're going to notice something interesting. The very last words of the book of Genesis are Joseph's instructions to put his bones in a box so they can carry him back to the promised land. Now, Joseph had at one point risen to the second in power of the Egyptian empire. Now, what do Egyptians do to important people who die? They build gigantic monuments, they mummify you, and they put you and a bunch of expensive stuff deep inside of that tomb. Joseph could have chosen that. What does Joseph do? You guys, you Hebrews... You're just going to put my bones in a box, and you're going to take me home. The very last words of Genesis are essentially this. Joseph tells his sons, God will visit us again. God will take us home, and you're going to take me home with you. This is what the death of Joseph speaks. You fast forward just a little bit, to the book of Exodus, chapter 13. That's the chapter where the slaves of Egypt, the people of God, are released and they are now on their way back home. And as that all begins to happen, the story actually tells us in Exodus 13 that Moses packs the box of bones that belonged to Joseph. And Moses says, you know what? Generations ago, Joseph said God would visit us and he would take us home, and he wanted us to take, us, take him home with us. God has now visited us. God is taking us home, and we're taking Joseph with us. For decades, this box of bones is a symbol of the promise that God made to Abraham. It is a reminder of faith and the promises and the power of God to a nation of slaves. We notice this throughout Hebrews chapter 11. What if my life of faith is for the sake of others? Joseph is dead, but by faith he tells the people of God, we're going home. What if my life of faith is so that others can actually reap the reward? His box of bones 
made other people think about God? Will my box of bones do the same thing? Even in death, guys, even in death, the faithful can point the rest of us to God. Joseph arranged his death so that he would continue to tell his family. He would speak though he is dead. God will visit us. God will take us home. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. That's how he arranges his death. Now listen, guys, because you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have an eternal hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has conquered the grave, we can confidently face physical death in the sure hope of resurrection and eternity with our God. And as a result of those truths, you and I can die with those ideas ringing in the air. When I do your funeral, I need you to give me good reasons to talk about Jesus. And not just any bum can be saved, right? Because technically that's true. There is something beautiful, honestly, for me to be able to stand up here in front of an urn, in front of a casket, and to use that life to talk to everybody else about Jesus. I need you to give your pastor at that moment a chance to talk about Jesus. Even in death, we can point others to Christ. Not only does my death not hinder or stop the work of God, it can actually be a link in the chain. It can actually be a piece of the puzzle. It can be part of what God uses to complete his work. So Joseph says, I'm dying. We're in Egypt. Put me in a box because God's taken us home. The next story is the story of a man through whom God took his people home. And it's the portrait of Moses and how faith was at work inside of his life. I want to spend a few moments inside of Moses' life, and we're going to connect it to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then the next time we're together, we're going to connect it to the rest of Hebrews 11 and how it ends. But let's read this in Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I love the King James, the pleasures of sin for a season. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt where he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith Moses, when he was born, He was hidden for three months by his parents 
So this is an expression of faith from Moses' family. Trust in God. Even though Pharaoh had set up this edict, they say, what we're going to do is we're going to protect our son. We're going to save our son. And here's that story. This this section of Moses' story happens in Exodus chapters 1 through 13. The people of Israel had grown so large, and the family had uh, the, the, the family had turned into a nation, nation and just multiplied. And so the Pharaoh of Egypt grew worried that these people were going to have too much power for him. So they enslaved the people of Egypt. And then Pharaoh says, let's go one step further, and he gives this edict. So for a period of time, every male child born to the Hebrews is supposed to be slaughtered by the midwives who give birth. So he gives this command, but all these male children just keep on getting born. So Pharaoh brings these midwives before him and says, why do we still have boys being born? I told you to kill them. And these Hebrew midwives, I love it. It's just this great story. They just sort of go like this, right? It's, it's actually in the original Hebrew. They shrug. And here's what they say. They say, well, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous when they give birth. And by the time we get there, it's done. The child is hidden. We, we don't have time to kill these babies. They lie to Pharaoh Boys keep on getting born. And inside that story, it says, and this Levite marries this woman. They give birth to this boy, and they find this boy precious and beautiful. They're not going to kill this child. They call him Moses. And before he was hidden in that basket that we all remember from our Sunday school stories, he's hidden in the closet for three months. And when he gets too old for them to hide, Mom weaves this basket, and they stick Moses in this basket, and they concoct this, 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 this beautiful and dramatic uh, scheme to save the life of Moses. So Moses' older sister takes this basket down the Nile to where the, the daughter of Pharaoh is. And so she releases this basket, and the daughter of Pharaoh sees the basket, opens it up. There's a beautiful child. And she said, I love this child. I want to keep this child. And so Moses' older sister, who's hiding in the bushes, comes out and says, hey, that's a beautiful little boy that you have there. How would you like me to find a Hebrew woman who can nurse and raise this child for you? And the daughter of Pharaoh goes, that's a great idea. So Moses' older sister goes and gets a hold of Moses' mother and brings her to Pharaoh's daughter to raise Moses. By faith, Moses' parents hid him. And look what God did. They disobeyed an unjust and evil law by faith. They were creative. They were persistent. They were faithful. And God saves Moses. God even allows Moses' mother to raise him as a child. It's fascinating. It's dramatic. It's powerful what happens in Moses' life. And the next thing that the writer of Hebrews grabs is that by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he decided, I'm not going to be a part of Pharaoh's household. He decides, I am instead going to associate with the people of God, my kin, the Hebrew children. And when he does so, the text says he is mistreated for following them. He is, what's the phrase? He is mistreated. He suffers reproach. The phrase is reproach for Christ. For associating with them, and the text says he considered that of more value than all of the treasures of Egypt. You see, guys, his decision is chosen by this writer as an example of people who choose Christ over the rest of the world. We live in this world of these dramatic cross pressures. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we're learning what the nature of God is like, what the commands of God are like, what God wants for us morally and ethically and religiously and in our relationships and families and what all of that is supposed to look like, what our finances, our education, our, 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 our work, what all of that is supposed to look like is given to us by God. And in comes the world around us and goes, nope everything's supposed to look different. You're supposed to do different things with your, your moral structure, your money, your value, your time, your work, your sexuality. And here we are caught in the middle of this. And we read the story of Moses and we learn something. It's more valuable to follow Christ even if it means mistreatment, even if it means ostracization, even if it means reproach, For the sake of Christ, it's more valuable for us to follow Jesus. Is my vision of God big enough to sustain this commitment? I've been around long enough to know that Christians will oftentimes make exactly this kind of commitment. Come what may, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. This just seems so real and so right. And Oftentimes, those kinds of commitments arise in emotional moments. And there's nothing wrong with that because that can kind of help us bring us to a point of decision or commitment or realization. But what happens when the emotion falls into the background in real life shows back up again? Is my vision of God big enough to sustain that commitment even when it means mistreatment and reproach? Scripture is clear about this choice. The friendship of God versus the friendship of the world. Scripture is clear that you and I cannot hold deep commitments to the way of this world and deep commitments to the way of Christ at the same time. James chapter 4, verse 4 puts it like this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here's part of what we read in Moses' story. A life of faith will cause us to choose Christ over security, popularity, or ease with the world. And guys, from my perspective, American Christians come face-to-face with this more and more every day. Who will I follow? With whom will I be friends? If you go back and you read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says that the people of God had actually learned to look ahead to the things of God. What they saw as they walked through a difficult and confusing world were the promises of God, the things that God was able to do. So we learn that we live as sojourners and as slaves. We learn, as the New Testament puts it, that we live as exiles in this world. This isn't our homeland. We're on our way to our homeland. We live in a place that sees things very differently than we do. We're sojourners and we're slaves, but we're signposts to another world. When the Apostle Peter opens 1 Peter, he addresses Christians by calling them exiles in this world, but exiles who are blessed with the grace and the presence of God. We're not left alone, but we're different from the world, again, for the sake of the world. Guys, the nation of Israel needed a Moses to show this kind of trust in God so that they could be freed from slavery. 
The people of God needed this kind of world-shaking faith. It led the way out of slavery for them all. I'm going to ask you guys this question. I'm just going to kind of leave it with you to spend some time with. Israel needed Moses to show that kind of faith to change their world. Who needs your faith? Whose life might change because of your trust in God? Our culture needs people to show this kind of trust in God. Who needs your faith? Somebody does. Some group of people needs your faith. The third picture, so to speak, that shows up in the life of Moses. By faith he left Egypt. He wasn't afraid of the king's command because Pharaoh was going to chase after him. Pharaoh didn't want them to go. Moses showed faith in God instead because he kept his eyes, as the text says, on what was invisible. That is his God. Moses endured the trials of the plagues of Egypt. He endured the confrontation with Pharaoh. And all of the work, it turns out, the very difficult work that came with leading the nation of the people of God out into the wilderness because he saw God instead of everything else around him. Moses was entirely convinced that God was powerful enough and good enough to fulfill his promises. The very last piece of what it tells us about Moses here is that Moses, by faith, he kept the Passover. All right, so this is another incredible and very dramatic story in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. It's the final plague of Egypt, and it's the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God promises that on this night, the firstborn will die, the firstborn of families and the firstborn of livestock. But God prepares people for it. He tells them this, if on that evening you slaughter a lamb and you take its blood and you cover your doorposts with that blood and you bring your family inside and you eat that lamb as part of this dinner, the next, first of all, you're going to be saved from the plague that comes through. And the next morning, you're going to be free. You're going to walk back out that door no longer as slaves, but as my people. And sure enough, that night was so devastating that that's what convinced Pharaoh to say, you people can go ahead and go. The only way out of slavery for them was through a blood-stained door. The only way out of slavery for us is through a blood-stained cross. That lamb will be sacrificed and his blood will cover you. Your trust in that command will save you, he tells his people. Don't worry, Isaac. God will provide for himself a lamb. Our only way out of slavery, slavery to sin, is through a blood-stained cross. And what this God asks for from his people, from you and from me, is trust in him. Shocking and overwhelming and surprising acts of faith that God is right, good, and powerful. What we need is Him. Not my concoctions, not my ability, not my cleverness, not my resources, but Him and all that He does. That's what we need. It's the only way to find salvation. It is the only way to find eternity with God. Is through that bloodstained cross. John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, 
At one point, he sees Jesus walking down the road, and he just stops everyone, and he exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. By faith, by faith, by faith. Why would I put my trust in anyone else? Let's pray.